You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, today we're, uh, we're continuing our series called The Day After Christmas. I just want to do two quick things. First of all, why don't you turn to your neighbor and just tell them 14. Just go ahead, 14. You can do it. If you're watching online, you can talk to yourself if you're by yourself. 14. Why do we say that? 14 days till Christmas, okay? This is your fair warning. 14, if you haven't gone Christmas shopping yet or, you know, put your decorations up, you have 14 days, okay? We're not to single digits yet, but we are getting very, very close. 14 days. Uh, if you were here last week, we handed out these cards, and uh, what we're doing as a church is we're taking time these next couple weeks now, and we're praying for three people. And here's what I want to encourage you. If you haven't, uh, stop by the Connection Center, get a card. What we want to do is God has done something awesome in our lives, and we want to share it with someone else. I want you to pray for three people over these next couple weeks and invite them Christmas Eve. Why? Because we, just like the shepherds did, we want to tell others what we have seen and heard, and, and maybe God can do it in their lives too. So three people I want you to pray for and uh, over these next couple weeks and see what God can do. You know, as we're walking toward Christmas, 14 days, there are certain traditions now that start to kind of all pile up, that uh, some of them are really unique to your family, like maybe you go through an advent calendar, maybe there's a certain time you set up the Christmas tree or you decorate or maybe there's certain things that you do or you eat or, or uh, whatever it may be in your family, certain traditions that you gather with friends or family. But then there are some traditions at Christmas that aren't really unique. They're pretty common across every, uh, every family or every home. And, and some of them, if you really step back and think about them, are kind of weird. They're kind of odd. Like, whoever came up with the idea that you take a tree from the outside and put it on the inside for like a month? It sounds like the work of a crazy person. Or you take lights from the inside and you put them outside. Or the oddest of them all is like you take your socks and you hang them from the mantle. And then you put little gifts in them, little surprises inside of them. Like, if you were to do these things at any other time of the year, you would be, like, kind of checked out because you had a few, few screws loose. Like, something would be, be off. But this is the beauty of traditions, isn't it? This is what makes tradition so awesome. Uh, and, and when you look at the history, you know, the tradition of the Christmas tree took place, started in the uh, 16th century in Germany. Christians would start putting trees up to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And, and uh, if you uh, see legend and, and tradition, it tells us that, that Martin Luther was one of the first people to put lights on a Christmas tree. Now, they didn't have electric lights, they had candles, which sounds way more dangerous than anything I could think of. Um, we're just worried about ornaments with our one-year-old. I couldn't imagine candles, like open fires. But this is what happened. From the 15th century, uh, our 16th century on, from the 1500s, uh, trees started to be kind of connected with Christmas. It started in Germany, eventually spread through Europe and into America eventually. Now, Christmas lights, on the other hand, that was like a later thing, of course. Uh, uh, Inventor Thomas Edison, of course, uh, created the incandescent bulb, and in, in the Christmas of 1880, he wanted to kind of advertise that uh, he had created these lights. So he had a laboratory building that was right along a main uh, trail, uh, train uh, route, and so he decided he was going to decorate the outside of his laboratory for Christmas with these incandescent bulbs, and as people went by, they would be able to see it. Well, one of the men that worked with, worked with him, a guy named uh, Edward Johnson, uh, uh, a few years, two years later, created the first light string for Christmas lights. And by 1890, uh, they had 
put these lights together into a, a really a string of lights, and they would become mass-produced and put in department stores. So 1890, so they've been around for a while. Uh, these are interesting traditions that we put lights up in different places. I don't know if you've gone to any light shows or, or anything like that, but these crazy traditions have become as much a part of Christmas as jingle bells or nat- nativity scenes or, or candy canes. <clears throat> And, and just as much as we love the, the traditions that build up to Christmas, like lead us toward Christmas, we also have the other side to the traditions of how we uh, kind of undo all the decorations and all that takes place. The traditions of undoing all that we've done for Christmas, the day after Christmas or the days after Christmas. Uh, for example, my wife and my mother-in-law, the day after Christmas, almost always go to World of Values. I don't know if any of you have World of Values fans, but uh, we'll go to World of Values and they'll like buy up all the Christmas plates and napkins and sometimes gifts and all of those things and we use Christmas plates for the next five months, it feels like. Um, we're buying them for next year though. We're buying them for next year. Um, that's that's our, our family. That's what my wife and my mother-in-law do. Maybe for you, like December 26th hits. It's like midnight. You're like, rip that tree down. Get the, you're like out there at two in the morning, ripping your lights off your house. And you're like, Christmas is over. Or, or you might be one of those diehard Christmas fans that you're like, we got the Christmas decorations up. Let's leave them there till Valentine's Day. Then we will take them out, down. <clears throat> Regardless, you know, of what your day after Christmas tradition looks like, there's such this huge buildup to Christmas. They, the day after is like, okay, you kind of breathe, and then you're like, let's get back to normal. Which is why we're talking about this this month, this idea of the day after Christmas. This is what we're talking about. It's because the day after the first Christmas, the entire world was ready to get back to normal after an effort by the Roman government to systematize, modernize, and, and just really get an up-to-date idea of who should be paying taxes, how much should they be paying. Uh, And and so they decreed over the entire Roman world uh, this census, this census where where people had to return to their hometown. We have no no clue how in the world they pulled this off. Like a census in today's age with modern technology is difficult and a challenge. I can't imagine what it was like for for in the first century. But the goal of the census issued by Caesar Augustus was ultimately to find out who's still alive, how many people should be taxed, and what should their tax base ultimately be. The way this worked out is that everybody had to go to their hometown where they were actually born, they had to register and and basically tell the Roman uh, government, hey, I'm still around. Yes, I should be paying taxes. Here's what I'm doing. Here's where I live. This This is basically the general details about my life. So if you lived in the town you were born in, like it was, it was cool. It was easy. Not too difficult. However, if you moved or someone in your family had moved, uh, you had to get up and travel to the place of your birth to register yourself and to register your family. Uh, Really, the end goal of this was about raising taxes. Uh, It was still about raising taxes, but we, of course, know that 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 journey set the stage for the very first Christmas. But this is important to understand. At this time in, in, in history, there was no Christmas like, there was no build-up to Christmas. They didn't have, you know, Christmas sales uh, at, at the Macy's in downtown Jerusalem uh, for Christmas stuff, like, as soon as September 1st hit. Like, they didn't have any of that. There was no Christmas. Uh, th- there was just honestly a lot of chaos because travel was expensive. 
Travel was very dangerous. It was common to get robbed along the roads. Uh, and people were just flat out ready to go home and like get back to normal, like I've had enough of this stuff. But little did they know, things would never be normal again because in the midst of the chaotic census of the Roman Empire, of course, a child was born, a child whose birth had geopolitical implications and not just for that generation, but for the generations that would come. And yet, in some ways... It was kind of like a page out of Greek mythology. It was, it was like something that only a storyteller could pen. Because the, the birth of this child, with the birth of this child, the divine had come to earth. The divine had become flesh and had made their dwelling among us. And, and here's the interesting thing about the birth uh, of, of Jesus. And this is what we see from history. Every single person whose life intersected with this little child from the time of his birth to the time of his execution, every single person whose life intersected his would become a footnote to his story. From peasants to governors to kings to even Caesar himself. And, and, and it's because unbeknownst to everyone, except for a very, very small group of people that evening, a king had been secretly brought into the world. Not, not like a religious figure, that's where we oftentimes go wrong. A king, a king who would disturb and reverse the order of everything in our world. A king with such a different approach who rather than requiring his subjects to lay down their lives for him would actually choose to lay down his life for his subjects. A king that would even go to the extent of saying that you are to lay down your lives for one another and if need be, you are to lay down your lives and your rights even for your enemies. And he would literally turn the whole world, everything upside down, but he would not do so as a religious figure or simply as a savior. He would do so as a king. And the kingship or lordship or the right to rulership of Jesus is so often lost on us. And it's, it's lost not on us because of what culture has done to Jesus. And, and unfortunately, it's lost on us because oftentimes of what the church has done to Jesus. Like, you see, for many of us, and maybe, maybe this is your experience today, Jesus has been reduced to simply a friend you call when things aren't going well. Like, like I'm having an emergency, so I just call this friend. Or, or, or Jesus has been reduced to nothing more than a backup plan. Or, or simply a way to relieve your conscience. He's become a comforter or a spare tire when we're in need. And, and, but while Jesus' right to rule your life and the right to rule my life and the right to rule as a king is often lost on us in the 21st century world, it wasn't lost on Mary. And it definitely wasn't lost on Joseph. Because when we uh, see what the, this angel that appears to Mary uh, what, what the angel shares with her about this child and what she was supposed to have, you can see that it landed really heavy with Mary in her heart. Here's what it says. It's recorded in Luke's gospel, chapter one, verse 30. It says this, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. You may have heard that verse many, many times. Now, uh, the name Jesus, uh, we just think like God just came up with a name and just threw it out there, but it's not. It's not just a random name. Jesus 
is, is really uh, an English version of a Latin name that was translated from a Greek name from a Jewish name, okay? The Jewish name is literally Yeshua, Yeshua. If you translate Yeshua into English, it's often translated Joshua, okay? And now, now Yeshua literally means leader or sometimes warrior, so what is the angel saying to, to, to Mary? He's say, she's saying, the angel's saying to, to Mary, you are to call him leader or warrior. Like he's not just throwing a name out there. Like you should call him Bob or you should call him, you know, uh, uh, Joe or you should call him, like he was, there, there was a meaning behind this. You are to call him leader or warrior. And the angel goes on in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now, now the angel here is using royal language because this was a royal title. He would be the son of the supreme king, and if there was any doubt about his royalty, listen to what the angel continues with in the next part of verse 32. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Now, David was the second king in Israel's history, so he's speaking with royal terms here, references. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. We sang about this earlier. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. He was saying that Mary was going to give birth to a king, a ruler, a command giver, a lawgiver, a judge. This wasn't just another baby. This wasn't just a, a savior, but he was a king. No mere forgiver of sins. He was ultimately gonna be a king. And what the angel says next is what you see play out throughout most of the Gospels in the book of Acts, which are the first five books of that second part of the Bible known as the New Testament, and really has played out over the last 2,000 years. It's something we just sang about today. Verse 33, and his kingdom will never End. Now, in the Greek, it's a little more stealthy kind of in how it words it. And, and I, th- I think it's more powerful if you follow the actual order of the words in the, in the original Greek text. And it says this. Uh, it says, and of his kingdom, there shall not be an end. And of his kingdom, there shall not be an end. Uh, basically, the angel saying, your son, Mary, will always be a king. He will always have a kingdom. And what that means for us today in 2022 is that Jesus is still a king. Like, he hasn't given that up. He's still a king and his kingdom is still here. And the question that I have to wrestle with every day, and and really this is an incredible framework, a template that that informs how we read the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. It comes with a question that, that any of us who call ourselves Christians should wrestle with every single day. Every day when we rise in the morning, we decide what our lives are gonna look like the decisions we're going to uh, make and, 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 and how, our, how our, we're going to spend our time or how we're going to spend our money or how we're going to prioritize what we do, the question that we should honestly wrestle with every single day, especially this time of the year, is this question. Is Jesus your king? Is he your king? He is a king, but is he your king? Or, or, or have I followed the path of culture? Have I simply followed the path of the traditions that I was raised with, or in the traditions of the church that I was raised in or grew up in? Have I reduced Jesus to nothing more than a conscience reliever? Have I reduced Jesus to someone I call on just in moments of emergencies or or when things are difficult? Have I reduced Jesus to nothing more than an icon, a cross I wear around my neck, or a tattoo on my ankle? Is he simply my last resort? And the unsettling thing about Jesus and the unusual thing about the fact that he is a king is he is a very unique king because he allows us to decide. 
He lets us choose. He is a king who invites, but he rarely, never intrudes. And here's kind of the the interesting thing about Jesus. When you choose, or when I choose, to follow the king, you choose and I choose. If If we choose not to follow the king, you choose and I choose not to participate in his kingdom on earth. The kingdom we talked about last week, we're going to be talking more about next week. A kingdom we see reflected in heaven. When Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in the Lord's prayer. This is the kingdom we're talking about. A kingdom that's reflected in heaven and he wants to say, come to earth. When we choose not to follow the king, we choose not to be part of that kingdom. And regardless of what I believe or you believe, regardless of what I think about the fact that he's forgiven me of my sins, when I choose not to submit to the king, I choose on that day not to participate in his kingdom in this world, which means I opt out, I miss out. And when you opt out or miss out, faith becomes reduced to nothing more than doctrine. Faith faith becomes reduced to nothing more than religion. You may be a Christian in the modern sense of the word, but you will not be a Christian in the original sense of the word. Because as the song goes, heaven uh, apologize for all of our worship leaders. Heaven will not meet earth like a sloppy wet kiss. It, it's because those two realms, heaven and earth, never converge in our lives. Because God's desire for you isn't just to be okay with him so you can go to heaven one day. His desire is that the kingdom of earth and heaven converge in you. That's his desire. You, you will say your prayers maybe to an invisible God, but you will ask forgiveness to an invisible God but you'll live your life maybe with the assurance that everything's cool, but you're not living in the kingdom. Why? Because you haven't submitted to his rulership, his lordship, ultimately his kingship. So on that first Christmas, in the midst of chaos, which was actually a diversion or a distraction, a king was secretly brought into this world. And and it was a perfectly executed plan if it wasn't for the sincere but somewhat confused magi. Mary and Joseph's secret of this baby, this king that had secretly been brought into the world would have still been a secret for probably the next 30 years. But here's what happened. It's recorded in Matthew chapter two, verse one. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. And I wanna pause there for a second. This is Herod the Great we're talking about. Now, you might not know much about Herod the Great unless you study first century history, but Herod the Great was truly great in so many ways. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He was an extraordinary architect, a a remarkable military strategist. He was one of the great generals. He was brilliant, but he was also ruthless. And he was absolutely committed to preserving his legacy and his dynasty through his children, whatever the cost might be. In fact, his plan, his hope, his goal was that one day his children would be kings. And the story goes on, verse one. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now these were probably court advisors from different kingdoms in the Far East, uh, most likely either Persia or uh, Arabia or perhaps maybe a combination of both. These men studied ancient texts and they also studied the sky and they studied the movement of the stars and the movement of the planets, always looking ultimately for divine messages in the sky. That's kind of what their thing was. Now, unlike the song that we often sing this time of the year, they were not kings. That was added in the, around the third century. It's kind of a third century legend, so to speak. 
Uh, so we don't know how many there were, but we celebrate the fact that there were three because they brought three gifts. But there could have been 30. We, we don't really know how many magi there were. And, and we don't know their names either. And this, is, this might burst your bubble, and I apologize if it does, if it ruins your sense of the Christmas story. Uh, they weren't actually following a star. This is why they showed up in the wrong place. Think about this. Uh, they traveled hundreds of miles, and instead of showing up where Jer- Joseph and Mary actually lived, they go to Jerusalem. They don't live in Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, nobody seems to be talking about or even concerned with the fact that a king had been born. And so the, the text says that they get to Jerusalem and they begin asking around regarding this king. They eventually make their way to the temple because that's the logical place. And, and here's the question they begin to ask. It's recorded in verse 2 of Matthew 2. It says, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? And they're asking this around the temple. And, and it was not lost on them that somehow something extraordinary had happened. A king had been secretly brought into the world. A king had been born, and it was a Jewish king. So, of course, where do they go? They go to Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world. And, and on top of that, they go to the temple, the center of Jewish worship. Uh, and and, and they're, they're asking, hey, where is this king that has been born? Because we saw what? This is how we know they didn't follow a star. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In other words, we saw the star and we knew this star signaled the birth of a king. We believed it was a Jewish king, so we came to the logical place, Jerusalem, and they begin asking around. And nobody seems to know what they're talking about. However, word starts to spread quickly throughout Jerusalem. Verse three, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Why would Herod be disturbed? Well, we shouldn't be surprised because the birth of a rabbi, hey, there are a lot of rabbis, right? Or, or the birth of a teacher, there are tons of teachers. Or, or maybe the birth of religious figures, you know, those kind of come and go. Or the birth of a prophet, there have been a lot of prophets throughout history. But the birth of a king, that's different. The birth of a king signals a regime change. He sees this as a threat. The birth of a king could signal an insurrection. The birth of a king could signal civil unrest or even worse, civil war. And for Herod, the birth of a king threatened his precious dynasty. It threatened his legacy. And and if you know anything about King Herod, he was not one to sit idly back and wait for what what was going to happen, to kind of just rule with the punches. Uh, In fact, he maintained power for over 40 years because he was proactive, because he didn't just react But when he did act, it was most often ruthless. And in this situation, he did what he'd always done. And what he does tips tips us off to something about Jesus that we can really easily miss. Here's what he did in verse three. It says, when King Herod uh, uh, heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Verse four, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Did you catch this? I don't know if you saw this, but he didn't ask where the king was to be born. He asked where the Messiah was to be born. He gets all the religious people together, like the smart ones, the priests and everyone together. And he says, okay, you guys have heard this rumor. Uh, The stars in the sky have proclaimed that something significant has happened, and it could only mean one thing. So tell me, all you really, really smart people, where is the Messiah prophesied to be born? Now, why does he insert the word Messiah? No one has said anything about a Messiah. The Magi didn't say anything about a Messiah. They were just asking about a king, but the term Messiah is the term or the title 
for God's final king, his last king. Messiah is a Hebrew uh, phrase which literally means anointed one or the anointed one. The Greek equivalent uh, of this that shows up in our New Testament is this word called Christ. And this is important. Christ is not a name. Christ isn't a nickname. It isn't just a descriptor. The term Christ is a title. It is a title for God's final king. In fact, when you look at the Greek text of this verse, it actually gets to this, and it says that the the, the Christos, meaning the Christ, not a Christ, not not a, a, a random Christ, the Christ, the Christos would be born. Uh, this is huge. Where will the Christ be born? Uh, that's what it asks. Because they gathered in his court, these wise men. And, and, and Herod's is saying, apparently the Christ, the Messiah, the, the final king, the anointed one of God, has touched down here on earth. It's been prophesied. Now, you smart people like, tell me, where is it supposed to happen? And, and, and their response was essentially that, that a king had been born, And unlike us, they didn't know his name. And here's why that's important. Unfortunately, we've allowed the person to define the term. If somebody talks about Christ, you think, okay, that's Jesus, right? When you say Christ, you hear the word Christ, you think Jesus, right? We say things like, hey, Christ Jesus, or our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's almost like we've reduced Christ to nothing more than a last name. Like, that's his last name. We've allowed the person to define the term rather than allowing the term Christ to define the person. Because Christ is Jesus' title. It means Jesus, God's anointed one. Jesus, the final king. A king had been born, and not just any king. This king was not anointed by another king. He wasn't anointed by a, a prophet or a priest. This king was anointed and appointed by God the Father, the creator of all things. He was appointed by God to ultimately establish, as we read in the first part of the Bible, the Gospels, a kingdom that was not of this world, but a kingdom that was for this world. A kingdom that was not of this world is a kingdom that was in this world. It was an upside down kingdom that would be characterized as an other's first kingdom. And Herod suspected this, and he was right to be threatened by it. Because he knew that when a king is born, when a king is born, people must choose. When a king is born, people have to make a choice. In the early 1900s, C.S. Lewis did a number of radio talks, and and, uh, those talks were eventually turned into a little pamphlet. It's kind of an obscure pamphlet that's called The Case for Christianity. It's a very uh, kind of difficult pamphlet to, to locate, but it, it hints at some of the same concepts we see in his book, Mere Christianity. Uh, but it's a really short booklet. In the end of the booklet, he, there's this remarkable statement that C.S. Lewis makes about choosing. And, and in his creative way, he gets to the point of what we're talking about here today. His words take us right to the Christmas story and this idea of the authority of Jesus. And what he says is powerful moving because even for me, even in, in, in the fact that uh, this is what I do, uh, to reduce Jesus to something less than a king, to reduce him to less than something that he came to be, something that is so clear that once you hear a message like this, you read the New Testament and you see it everywhere. Every single time a person says Jesus Christ in reverence or without reverence, they are proclaiming 
Jesus Christ, Jesus King, Jesus is King. And when a king is born and when a king shows up, people have to choose. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. Because here's what we really want. We want God to just fix this, fix that, fix him, fix her, but like, don't get any of it on me. Like, just take care of them, right? We think if, if God will just fix them and fix the world or fix that person or fix what's wrong in that situation, but just don't mess with me. Like, keep me out of the mix. And he goes on. He says, when that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then? When you, when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it, it, will, uh, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror in every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. And then he wraps up this whole uh, statement, hearkening back to something that Peter would write. He said, now today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And on, on Christmas, on Christmas, a king was born. And the question is every single day, the question is for those of us who believe, is Jesus my king? Is Jesus your king? Have you submitted to the king? Have you accepted his invitation? And don't miss this. Have you accepted his invitation not simply to believe, but to follow? Herod believed. In fact, in fact, when Herod had called together the chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah uh, was to be born, where this person who was God's final king was to be born. And when they said to him, well, in Bethlehem, everybody knows this. It's just a few miles from here. It's like right down the road. Uh, and, and, and you know the story. Herod secretly calls uh, the Magi to him, and, and he finds out the exact time that the star appeared. Now, why did that matter? Why the exact time? Because he wanted to know, what's the age of this infant king? And once he discovered the age of the infant king, he could act accordingly. Because unlike us sometimes, he believed a king had come into the world. And one thing was, was for certain, he was not about to bow his knee to another king. He would not surrender his will. He would not surrender his legacy. He was going to have his way. So he sends the Magi on their way to discover the location of this child king. A king whose kingdom, it would turn out, would not be of this world, but would be for this world. Because with this king, heaven met earth in a way that only storytellers could imagine, where, where God became one of us to dwell with us. And not simply so we could know how to get uh, to heaven when we die, uh, but so that we could experience in this life the kingdom values of God, the values of heaven here on earth, in this upside down kingdom of God. It's a kingdom where, where God cares about the people and God cares about those over whom he reigns and over whom he is sovereign. As the worship team comes today, 
Jesus came into a system infused and informed by the kingdom values of this world. A a place where power is the priority, where the strongest win, where those who have the gold make all of the rules. That's the world that we live in today. This is a place where if you have the power and the resources, you leverage that power and those resources ultimately for your own benefit. And into that world, a king was born. A king who came to reverse all of those values and practices. And the invitation would soon be given and is given today. Will you follow me? Will you surrender to me? Will you acknowledge me as more than a sin forgiver, more than a conscience cleanser, more than a good luck charm, more than a last resort, more than a phone a friend? When you acknowledge me as your king, if you do, you will be invited to participate. Not simply believe in, not simply just join. You will be invited to participate in the kingdom of God. And wherever people have taken that invitation seriously, that part of the world becomes a better, safer place. Wherever it's happened in the world throughout human history, when people have, have taken up that invitation, anywhere in the world and anywhere in any stage of history, that part of the world becomes a safer, better place. Why? Because the kingdom values of our king are lived out in such a way that people see themselves through the lens of their heavenly father and their king who came to die for them. And on this Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a king. And the question for me, for you, the question that we have to ask tomorrow morning when we wake up and start our day, tomorrow when we wake up and start uh, uh, all that we have planned, if you're a Christian, is this question, is he your king not not is he just your savior is he your king and I think that's a question that we have to wrestle with and we have to decide it's a crossroads that you can't just move past you have to make a decision is he your king because if he's not your king don't expect to be part of the kingdom and and what the kingdom means when we talked about last week if he is your king you submit You choose to follow the king. You choose to live your life in the context of what he calls us to. The kingdom that he has established. An upside down kingdom that is so foreign and so different from the ways of this world. That is what we are called to be. Because the subjects of this kingdom, the subjects who submit to this king, aren't looking to make something for themselves aren't looking to accomplish something for themselves. What he calls us to is a backwards kingdom, an upside down kingdom that we are here to serve and see what we can get for others and how we can help others. And if you haven't said, Nick, he is my king, not he is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No, he is my king. If you haven't taken that step, I wanna pray here in a minute and say, you know what, this is your chance to say, you know what, he's gonna be my king from this moment on. I wanna follow him and what he says and what he teaches and how he's called me to live. Not just how he's called me to feel, but what he's called me to live. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I thank you for today and I thank you. Jesus, that that over thousands of years, the prophecies given, all that was spoken of, wasn't simply of, of an individual who came to relieve my conscience wasn't just an individual who came to make me feel better, 
or to help me when things aren't good. God, you're not just a crutch that I lean on when everything's falling apart. God, you are more than that. You are a king who came to establish a kingdom. And God, today, as we ask that question, is he my king? As we ask that question of ourselves, is he my king? I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would begin to confirm, would begin to confirm, Lord, the path that you have for us. Lord, a path of following your lordship, of allowing your, your leading of our lives toward your purposes. As you're continuing to pray this morning, if you're here and you, you've never taken that step to allow Jesus to be your king, meaning that you've never taken the step to, to not only let him forgive you of the wrong you have done, but to submit to his plan and purpose for your life. That's not something that he's trying to handcuff you in. It's something he's trying to set you free toward. You're not bound by the, the words and, and the, the boundaries of this world. You are bound by the creator of all things, the one who made you and shaped you, the one who is calling you to something more. That's the king that we serve. If you've never taken that step, in a minute, I'm gonna count to three. I'm just gonna ask you to reach your hand toward heaven. Just as an act of real estate, you know what? Jesus, you're my king. Jesus, I wanna live for you. Jesus, I wanna experience your forgiveness. Forgiveness. If that's you this morning, on the count of three, I just want you to reach your hand toward heaven. One, two, three. Would you reach your hand toward heaven this morning? Amen, amen, amen. Anyone else today? Amen. You can put your hands down. I'm gonna pray a prayer. And as we pray this prayer, I'm not, I'm not, you know, giving you some magic prayer that we just pray. This is a conversation with God. He is our king, but he is an approachable king. The book of Hebrews says we can approach the throne of grace with confidence that, that, that he is uh, a friend, but he's also our king. And we can talk to him. And I want to lead you in a conversation. My hope is that this is the first of many conversations you have with God. Would you pray this prayer with me together? Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to this earth to be my king. Today I accept your forgiveness. I commit to live for your purposes. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you all the days of my life and to show your love to the world around me. In Jesus' name. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 